stands for our acts The sea can be deep for our diving Hope comes and stops us in our tracks Bravely we prove in our striving Trudging together each day Where there's a will, there's a way Hello everyone and welcome to today's episode of Raw Recovery with Dion Miller um, I know that everybody is used to hearing stories and we're going we're gonna to be here some story, but really today, um, and I'm pretty excited about this is, uh, and I've been waiting for this, I've been waiting for this, so God finally decided it was time to bring on a co-host, okay, which is going to be kind of nice. So I um, have always wanted to come on and talk about the harder uh, subjects in recovery, Think, yeah, taboo subjects, things that people just refuse to talk about. Um, and I will let you guys know that part of what we do also consists of family. So you're probably going to hear children in the background. So if that kind of bugs you, then hit the stop button, I guess. Um, so today I'm going to be bringing on, uh, uh, hopefully somebody that's going to be coming on with me quite often. Um, she wrote a, uh, an article this week on the, uh, on, uh, recovery's dirty little secret. And, uh, it really, it sparked a conversation with us, a conversation that I really liked. And it was pretty short because we kept it for this. So, uh, I'd like to go ahead and introduce Sarah Zubrin. She is also the chief, uh, chief clinical officer for Mile High Continuing Care. Uh, welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you. Glad to be here. <laughs> so, um, uh, you also hold a couple of different licenses, um, you have your licensed addiction counselor, um, you and you also have your master's in uh, in uh, marriage and family counseling. Yeah. Um, and I've always found that and families are just as sick as everybody else. Is that kind of why you went that route? That is. Um, also, I got into addiction counseling backdoor because all the families I worked with were sick with addiction surprisingly <laughs> yeah that's 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 always surprising but um well what you know and this is going to be kind of the story part for us but what happened that you decided to kind of become an advocate with what we're talking about today which what we're covering today guys is uh mental health in alcoholics anonymous yeah so you know, for me, it's hard to differentiate when my addiction started and when my mental health issues started. Mm -hmm. um, really, at like age 13 and 14, I had this onset of drinking and drugging. And in addition to that, some pretty significant depression symptoms. Um, I remember at 14 years old, I attempted suicide once and was unsuccessful. Um and I just really did not want to be alive. So mm -hmm. at that point, you know, alcohol was part of my story. And I had alcohol poisoning twice. Wow. Um, and really, I was just trying to drink myself to death. So mm -hmm. I was able to reach out to my parents. And they were able to get me into therapy and some support with medication um, and go from there. But really, since 14 years old, depression and then anxiety have been a significant impact in my life. 
um, I remember the day I went to treatment, I sat in my car and I was planning like, okay, so today I'm either going to go home and kill myself or I'm going to do something different. Mm -hmm. And that was like, that was obviously a major turning point in my life because that got me into treatment, which ultimately got me into recovery. Um, hey, so did you want to, did you want to play with something? Okay, we're good. Go ahead. Yeah, so ever since I got into recovery, you know, say hi. Say hi. Okay, go play outside. So ever since I got into recovery, depression has been like a consistent thing that I've also had to work on. She's really excited to be here, everybody. But, um... Yeah, so depression and anxiety are continual things that I have to work on. And unlike my recovery, it's not like it's black and white, right? Mm -hmm. um, there will be times where I'm going to a meeting every single day and I'm sitting in that meeting thinking, wow, it'd be nice if I just didn't wake up tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And that's been like periods. Like my longest period of depression was five years. Yeah. And I tried four different categories of antidepressants mm -hmm. and Two, two of each medicine, so like eight different antidepressants total, mm -hmm. and none of them worked for me. Wow. Long term, like none of them worked. They actually made me have suicidal thoughts. So when I look at like talking about mental health issues in the rooms, this has been my life story. Mm -hmm. So it's like so hard for me to think about separating mental health and 12-step programming. Mm -hmm. So I'm, that's kind of what brings me I'm, here. I've I've always found for me, and you know, well, number one, I mean, we can go back to really anybody's addiction or alcoholism and find trauma in there. Um, and trauma comes with anxiety, depression, PTSD. Mm -hmm. I mean, it comes with a whole set of things. And, um, you know, it's just become more and more taboo lately, it seems like, to bring up mental health issues uh, I was I was on an online meeting last week and a lady had shared her experience with that and somebody shut her down and yeah and this is why we're here guys I mean we're here because we're advocates right? right and and Sarah and I aren't the people that shut our mouths and kind of let things slide so I let her know it was okay to share in a meeting like that and if the other person has a problem that he can go talk to his sponsor well you know and I think a lot of times it comes up and it makes people just plain uncomfortable because it's so, you know, quote unquote, I'm putting my fingers up taboo. You know, when it's, when really it's not. Right. <laughs> um, anytime I'm sitting in a meeting and I'm like, raise your hand if you feel like you want to die right now. Yeah. Uh, at least five people raise their hand. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's at least five more in that meeting who are feeling that way. But don't feel safe to share that sure. kind of stuff. Sure. Um, and I go back to like, I got um, I got into recovery when I was 21 years old. So my entire adult life has been spent <laughs> learning how to live sober. Yeah. Which is an experience. I always say this. I get to make all my mistakes without substance use as an adult, mm -hmm. which really sucks and is painful. Yeah. I'm like, God damn it, I can't even blame alcohol yeah. for that shit. Um. But I, I'll never forget 
this gal comes in and she shares, I want to kill myself. And then we go out to Village Inn afterward because mm -hmm. the fellowship is the meeting after the meeting. And she just talks about being suicidal the entire time she's there. She goes home and she completes suicide. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget that there were 50 people in that meeting and then another 20 people who went out and listened to her talk about this. And I heard it's an outside issue. I heard you get a suffer. Your first five years of recovery are about suffering. No. And I'm like, and I carried that with me because yeah. today, if somebody ever came to me with those kinds of feelings or thoughts and they're sharing in a meeting and they hear outside issue, mm -hmm. it's not an outside issue. Mm -hmm. Our mental health is what keeps us sober. Yeah, like exactly. if we're not emotionally sober, if we're not mentally well, then we're not going to stay physically sober. Correct. And you know, I think a lot of people kind of... I don't know if it's just a be because they separate the two, but if you even take a look back, uh, Bill W. suffered from depression, a lot of depression. He used acid, he used marijuana, he used uh, uh, mushrooms, you know, and he told me, it's not like you know, he was high. Nobody made him change his sobriety date, hint, hint, people. Um, you know that there are other things out there that can help mental health but we're not really there that's kind of off the subject there so what is it that we need to do what you know how do we go about changing people's minds because that's really what it is you know, you know we need to create safe spaces for these people to be able to say what they want without any kind of fear of judgment right and unfortunately the AA rooms aren't going to do that not right now, not from what I'm seeing. My own group wouldn't. Yeah, and I think that's like the crux is people came to me after I wrote this article about recoveries during mm -hmm. a little secret, and they said, that's not AA's job. We're just a collective yes, of people. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> then what the fuck is our job, everybody? Yeah. Our job is to save lives. Mm -hmm. And like you said earlier, Trauma contributes to our disease, yep. right? And guess what? We accumulate trauma. The longer we're active in our disease, the mm -hmm. more trauma we accumulate. Yep. Just like the inability to overcome failure, we accumulate trauma. We mm -hmm. accumulate failure. Mm -hmm. And then we come in and we're broken and we're beaten down and we don't know what to do with our lives. Yeah. So the easiest thing is to go pick up a gun and blow my brains out. Yeah. Literally that's much easier than having to ask for help. Yeah. So like, it's about a culture shift. Mm -hmm. It's about what we're doing in our direct community. Yep. And that's, that's like the biggest dissonance, disconnect I've seen with mm -hmm. AA, yeah. is why don't we want our community to acknowledge how sick we are? Yeah. Well, I think, I think that that's tough because then people have to take a look at themselves. And anything that's not in their little world affecting them is not going to be taken care of. But here's the thing. There isn't anybody that doesn't know a drug addict or alcoholic anymore. Right. I, I, when I first got into the program at 89, it's like 1 in 10. Now, no. Everybody has somebody in their family or a friend. Mm -hmm. Between the opiate problem we have going on and alcoholism being the number one killer... <laughs> right. I mean, it's just, it, it does, it blows my mind. 
Um, we it says right in the big book, you know, if I'm going to be a big book thumper here, because I am, um, but I'm also a big book thumper that believes that AA isn't the only way. Um, it says in there that it is a mental illness. Right in there, a mental illness, because we think it is. I mean, in those words. Not only that, but they talk about suicide in the big book all the time. The ultimate sacrifice. Bill W. slept downstairs because he was afraid he was going to jump out the window. You know, and these are things that we need to deal with. And it, you know, maybe for some people that, well, I didn't want to commit suicide, you know. Well, we're committing suicide on the installment plan just by drinking. Right. And Bill Bill W. was ostracized after they found out he was doing acid. Yeah. To treat his depression. Yeah. Um, yeah. So people come in, and this is, like, so funny to me. Sarah, I'm a vegan. Okay, dude, you've been drinking 30 drinks a day. <laughs> like, you're killing yourself with poison. Uh, but you want to focus on your diet right now? Totally okay. Totally fine. <laughs> But this is like how distorted our thoughts are mm -hmm. around mental health. It is absolutely a mental health issue. Substance use is a mental health crisis. Mm -hmm. It's a mental health epidemic. Yeah. And yeah. every day people come in and they're like, well, I don't even know if I was trying to kill myself with drinking anymore. Sure you were. You did, <laughs> but you know, and you don't hear this very much anymore either, but denial is not a river in Africa. Right. You know, and... You know, we deny these things, well, not me, you know, just, it couldn't be me, you know. And we want to be terminally unique, when really what it comes down to is if we just ask that one word, help, to the right person, we can make changes in ourselves, and we can go beyond the 12 steps. There's a life beyond the 12 steps that a lot of people don't grasp, and it has to do with mental health. And we're in the mental health field, I still see a therapist. Are you kidding? Right. <laughs> After what I do? Yeah, I need a therapist. It's a therapist dog. I've gone through four of them. But, you know, <laughs> bad joke. So, um, do you think maybe, do you think it might, maybe some of it may, I don't know, I don't know, that maybe people are scared to talk about because they don't know, they're not educated. So, they're like, well, I don't want to get involved. I'm just going to cause more confusion than harmony. When really all they need to say is, Dude, I love you. You know, you're all right. I'll be here tonight if you need me. But, you know, just little things like that can help. But do you think people might have a fear because they might do something wrong by helping that person? Yeah. And I talk about this all the time in my line of work when I'm working with sober living house managers. Mm -hmm. I say, are you afraid of asking people if they're suicidal? No. And they say, oh, yeah. And I say, why? No. The answer is, I'm not afraid of asking, but I am afraid of the answer. It's the answer. And so then we get into like, well, AA is a group of people who are just coming together to not drink. Yeah. So if I ask the question and somebody says, yes, I am suicidal, then what responsibility do I have for mm -hmm. that? Yeah. You only have the responsibility yeah. to like say, okay, cool, let's get you to an ER. Let's figure out how you can yeah, be let's safe. Do but we still have a responsibility to ask questions that mm -hmm. are hard for us. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, especially in the field that we're in, people are, you know, things are getting so PC now that even asking a question is done out of fear. And 
you know, fear is the driving force of everything that we're trying to stay away from. So, um, I kind of, I kind of feel like, you know, like with what we're doing here, talking about it and being proactive, I think we need to have more conversations about it and people need to let go of their little plans and designs. And when they see a chance to educate, they need to open their mouth and do so. And, but that even right there is scary in and of itself, you know? Um, let's say you're, you know, you're at work and there's somebody you can help, but you don't want to do anything because you're afraid they're, oh, they're going to think I'm an alcoholic and then they're going to pass me over for the supervisor job. You know, the stigmata right. that comes with it, which is why we're here. Right. Because there's people in positions that can't talk. Yeah. yeah. And it's so important to be out of the closet about our recovery. Um, my recovery involves recovering from depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. My recovery involves recovering from drugs and alcohol. So the more we share about this and the more we normalize, like you're going to find so many more people who have substance use disorder and suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. And uh, all the recent data says that substances were found in 70% of suicide completions. Yeah. So if we're looking at this as like a huge community issue, mm -hmm. This is a huge community issue. It is. And in my like circle of 12-step meetings, I can count seven people I lost to suicide. Mm -hmm. That's obscene. We should, if you go mm -hmm. ask a normal quote-unquote person, how many people have you lost to suicide that you know? Mm -hmm. It might be one. Maybe. Maybe. Mm -hmm. But I, at this, like in the last seven years, I think it's been one person a year. Yeah. that I know directly who has completed suicide. Mm -hmm. And that's unacceptable. It is. And this is this is a community issue. It is. And it does come down to community. I, mean, I ask all the time, and people aren't getting my question, but, you know, what is the actual price of a human life? Because we're walking by it every single day, you know, but instead we want to focus on, well, they're allowed to poop on the street now. Well, you know, if they weren't on the street... <laughs> Then you know, you know. Where else it, would I poop? Yeah, our our idea, our, our the subjects that we want to cover really aren't subjects. They're just a deterrent to not talk about what's actually going on. The person doesn't what they need. What they they don't have what they need in order to live a comfortable life, and we avoid that. That we will walk around the block to avoid it, just like the subject. Um, you know, uh, so I, I want to go back a little bit because I dealt with a lot of anxiety and I was a year and a half sober uh, this time around. I'm coming up on four years um, and I know the big book in and out. I've been working with therapists since 1985 da, 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 and I know and I have all this education, but I still didn't know that it was happening to me. It wasn't until my wife and my therapist sat me down for two months and convinced me that I had PTSD. I'm like, I was never in the armed forces. How can I, you know, so people had, even I had that ideology of what PTSD looks like when really it was something entirely different. So, um, and I'm not sure if that comes from how they portray it on TV, you know. Right. Like watching AA meetings on TV. That's, that's not how it goes at right. all. You know. <laughs> I just kill people because... I have PTSD. Yeah. That's kind of like the movies, right? Yeah. 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 
Like, oh, you scared me, so now I have PTSD and I killed you accidentally. Yeah. yeah. That's not actually what it looks like in real life. Nope. And this is, you know, again, we go back to, like, in our community, the pool is poisoned. Mm-hmm. Because so many people have accumulated all this trauma while they were using, and then we, as a 12-step program, normalize that. Yeah. Okay, so oh, so you're coming in talking about being date-raped while you were blacked out. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Right? Our fifth step says, okay, now we're going to uh, give up the resentment. <laughs> yep. And I'm always astounded when my sponsor says, okay, let's talk about your trauma. And I'm like, okay, my trauma is for my therapist. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, I don't need to talk about my trauma with you because A, you're probably going to open that box and not know how to put it back. Yeah. And then B, I'm going to have to deal with this for months and years down the road. Mm. And, and that's real. It's really important. And I mean, I do this with everybody, including my children. If I have to say no or anything like that, I explain why. Yeah. And, you know, you, you don't want to go open a box that you don't know what you're doing. And, that, and there again, isn't that the fear that mm-hmm. we were just talking about? And why does that come back? It, well, that comes back to education. Education goes down to prevention. Something we have nothing at all. We don't have prevention in Colorado much anymore. We're working on it. We're getting back. But um, there's been a lot of changes that have happened in the recovery field. And I think that's why there's a lot more females getting... I've noticed this. There's a ton of females getting sober. And it's because of the new way that we're doing things. Not necessarily a new way. It's just a little different. Yeah. You know? Um... So it's not necessarily new. You're still going to do the work. <laughs> Five easy steps. You know, nope. It doesn't Hopefully. matter where you go. Right. So, um, so I and I've noticed this that you know men are just not allowed to talk about their feelings. Oh no. Well, you can be mad. Yeah, we can be angry. Yeah, or emotionally shut off yeah. and distant. Those are okay. Yeah. How are you feeling? Fuck you. Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay, I'm totally normal. You well, You're good. Then. You're fine. <laughs> right? Um, which is like another huge thing when there are some really influential males in this community. And I love to see social media where they're normalizing mental health care. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm getting support. I'm going to do this because I'm angry as hell. Yeah. Why are you so angry? Yeah. Why are guys so angry? Probably unresolved trauma. Yeah, it's very much unresolved trauma. And it usually has to do with mom. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And whenever I'm doing a four-step with somebody, if mom isn't the top one, then you know, I haven't done my job. <laughs> so. <laughs> You're like, you need to go back and rewrite that real quick because your yeah. mom is still a resentment. Yeah. <laughs> Why isn't God on there? You're missing. <laughs> I can only think of 10. Okay. <laughs> um, so... You know, with, because I go, I go live a lot. I go live every day and, you know, I still have life on life's terms and I don't change it any. If I have anxiety that day, I still get on and do it. Mm -hmm. And people can see the difference. Sometimes I've done my live in front of an ER when I'm getting ready to go in. Yeah. You know, because people need to see what it's actually like. Um, And it's for, you know, for me. Um, you know, I'm Virgo, so I like everything in order. I always know what I'm doing. I like being on time. 
So when anxiety and PTSD comes in and everything's out of control, I lose my ever-living mind. I get lost in the grocery store. You know, and that's, that is scary because you don't know what's going on. Right. Um, and this is unresolved stuff. I think people tend to take the four-step as that therapy step, and it's actually, it goes way beyond that. Oh, absolutely. And I was talking to a clinician the other day, um, and he's like, well, you know, the 12 steps are as therapeutic as any therapy you can get. And I'm like thinking in my head, how are you practicing mm -hmm. clinical skills? Because that is not how it works. Yeah. Um, I'm not a therapist that goes in and I'm like, okay, now we're going to work the 12 steps and you're going to be better. I do actual therapy, yeah. which in the addiction treatment industry is a little, that's backwards. Yeah. That's another issue for another day. Yeah. But <laughs> that would be, that's a full hour of that itself, is, yeah. We could do a two-parter on that, really. Okay. Um, but yeah. The 12 steps are not therapy. There are actually meetings called This Ain't Therapy Yeah, in Denver. Mm -hmm. We are not going out there into the community to give you therapy and to help you get well. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, our responsibility is if you need therapeutic intervention, mm -hmm. we can say that. Yeah. We yeah. can say that all day long. And I've had people share about like... um. Like cross-sharing. Somebody sure. says, I'm going to a different fellowship or I'm doing this. And somebody will cross-share and say, you know, I pick this program because it treats all my issues. And I got off all my psych meds because that's what made me sober. And I'll, I'm not the one to be quiet. I chime <laughs> in and say, you know, there's like IPs written about that. There's pamphlets. Yeah. There's parts of the literature that say like... Um, that's an outside issue, and we yeah. don't have any opinion on outside yeah. issues. Again, it comes back to, like, what is our community responsibility? That, yeah, it all comes back to community. We cannot rely on any political agenda or anybody in politics to help us out with this. We can't do it. We, it that's abundantly clear, and that's, that's fine. But... And this is a different topic for a different day, but where the money goes when it hits Colorado is kind of an issue here, too. Ha, huh? ha, huh? community outreach center. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I better We go got a lot step. to say on yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> well, things, things change, but again, that's a different topic. And, uh, but I think that it does come down to community. It has to be hands-on. Um, and there's some things I'm working on with trudging together where we're going to be hitting high schools and going and talking to these kids, man. Because, you know, for me, when I was 15, my mom made me go to an AA meeting because she knew that it was coming. Yeah. And she was newly sober herself. I hated her for it. But when I was 19 years old and I was ready, I knew what to do because my mom educated me before. So... I think education and prevention is very, very important. Creating safe spots for these people to talk. You know, and, and AA isn't it. You know? Now, there again, you can open your own meeting and kind of do things your own way since you're autonomous. But, you know, there again, you're going to get pushback and things like that. It's true. And how can we make, 
how can we make AA more friendly to mental health issues? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, people are going to be going to AA. It's readily available. Mm -hmm. It's free. Mm -hmm. And it does help. Yeah. It has a lot of solution in it. I'm I'm always going to be a 12-stepper. Sure. And I think that's where like a lot of the the pushback came from. Sarah, why are you dissing on 12 steps? Dude, I'm not. They just, just can't cure you. <laughs> they just can't cure you. Right? And yeah. I'm tired of hearing like the 12 steps cured my depression. No, it no, didn't. didn't. Yeah. It didn't. And actually, while you're speaking with me, you just gave me five symptoms of depression that you're actively experiencing mm -hmm. and don't even know. Yeah. And that's what's crazy to me. Your depression isn't gone. You're just pretending it's not yeah. there. You're literally the, and they talk about this in the big book, you're literally the boy whistling in the dark. Yeah. You know? It's the same people that slam on the, on the, on the uh, table. I'm so fucking grateful. <laughs> it's just like, oh my God, you sound so angry. I don't understand. No, that's passion. You know, I know passion and that's not it. You know? <laughs> right. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with, because there was a change in AA back in the 80s. And... Those are the old timers now. Right. And those old timers got 40 years. And you're going to tell them they got PTSD? Fuck yeah, you. They are not going to listen to it. No. So. Because AA solved all their problems. Yeah, duh. exactly. Yeah. So, and, and that's good for, you know, that's great. Good. I'm glad you're living a happy life. But I have seen a lot of AA members, including in my own family, that committed suicide while sober because they didn't take care of their other stuff. They didn't take yeah. care of their mental health stuff. You know, they they were depressed because they were tired of people having to take care of them all the time. Things like that, you know. But he never got the chance to actually express his feelings around that. And he probably never would have either. Yeah. And you think, like, how many times have you heard shared in a meeting? At least I didn't use. Yeah. I, I hate it when I hear that. Um, you know, the the at least I didn't use. I mean, I understand that, like, in the first month, you know, because that in and of itself is a miracle. But then, you, you know, after a time, it's no longer about the drugs or alcohol. And that it's a switch. And once it's made, that's the miracle that we always talk about. Sit around, wait for the miracle to happen. There's a little switch in there when it becomes... Now I'm living life on life's terms. Right. And not just, it's not about the alcohol or the drugs anymore. This is about me being a happy person, about living a fruitful life and being nice to God's children for, you know, because God gets pretty mad when I beat up his children. You know, he doesn't tolerate <laughs> that anymore. What? Yeah. So what you're saying is like domestic violence, physical violence mm -hmm. really shouldn't be happening if you have lots of sobriety? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it shouldn't be. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I think well, I think by that point you should know of gone to therapy and things like yeah. that. Yeah. See, I but I've always been through that course. So for me, you know, I think of it and I just assume other, you know, for a long time I made this mistake. I assume that other people just knew that. You know, and I wasn't educating. And that was my responsibility to do. Sure. Um, there's a saying in AA, and I believe it to the core. When anyone anywhere reaches out for help, I want the hand of God to be there. And for that, I am responsible. Right. And that goes, that rolls, summarizes everything together from what we've been discussing is like, 
if somebody comes and shares in a meeting that they're suicidal, then they probably don't know what shoulds they should be doing, yeah. right? Yeah. So we have to act as that conduit mm -hmm. for God or higher power or whatever. We mm -hmm. have to be those people. Mm -hmm. And that's like, that's the crux. How do we, how do we build confidence in 12-step programming for people to say, okay, I will be the hand that you need to get where you need to go. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, that's, we don't talk about that here. Mm -hmm. Instead of letting that person walk out and die, how do we reach out our hand and say, this is our community. Mm -hmm. You're here forever. Mm -hmm. We want you to stay here forever. We're like a cult. Drink that Kool-Aid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Drink that Kool-Aid. Come on, join us. We, we are, in a sense, we are a cult, but we're the most successful one, so. And you don't have uh, to give us all our all your money yeah. either, so it's fine. That's, a, that's the thing. Cost of living for AA hasn't changed. I put a dollar in in 1989, and I put a dollar in now. Right. So, but there again, you know, it's good to see that some things don't change, but some things do need to change. And I think the way that it can be done, because we're not going to be able to, you know, changing people's minds that are already set in it can't be there. But if we go in and we start being the example now, in 10 years, we'll probably see, you know, five years or whatever, we'll mm -hmm. see an effect on that. Um, but it's got to start somewhere. Yeah. And it starts, it's like uh, those grassroots movements. Yeah is we take this back to our communities. Mm -hmm. We take this back to our home group and we have to be the loudest voice. And I always hear this in any debate, the loudest voice wins. Yeah. My loudest voice is going to advocate for the fact that these are co-occurring disorders. Yes. And we have no business making mental health an outside issue. Yeah. Now, do you want to explain what Co-occurring means, because I don't think oh, everybody sure. understands that. Co-occurring means two things happening at once. Mm -hmm. So that could be mental health diagnosis. That could be an eating disorder. Um, that could be physical disabilities that are chronic, mm -hmm. because those contribute to suicidality, and they contribute to long-term depression. So all of those co-occurring is just a lot. It could be one or two or three or four things mm -hmm. all happening at once. Okay. So more than one thing that's a kind of a crisis. So I know how we can explain it to people that, that we work with. It's like when you get two sentences to go to jail and they run concurrent. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's exactly it. All right, You're concurrently sentenced. <laughs> You're concurrently sentenced to being ill. Yeah. It's fine. So... Um, you know, this has been a, I think this has been a really good topic, and I think we're, we're going to make some progress with this. Um, and, uh, you, you know, you and I could talk a little bit more when we get off, but I, I have some pretty, I think, I think we should start hitting some more of these taboo subjects. So if anybody out there wants to hear a topic, or maybe you want to talk about a topic, but you can't or won't, we're here for you. Um, and we will advocate for you. We have no, I have no problem with, and I don't think Sarah does either, so. Um, I'll have more jokes next time, though. Yeah, well, this was our first time. I think it <laughs> yeah. turned out pretty well. I had a pretty good time talking about this, um, and I think it needs to start somewhere. Um, 
So if you're female and want to talk to somebody, Sarah's there. If you're male and you need to talk to somebody, I'm here. Um, if you're having thoughts of suicide, anything like that, reach out. If we can't help you, we will find somebody that can. Also, you can text 741-741, 24 hours a day, and that is the Federal Crisis Hotline. And that's 741-741. You can, uh, can you call that number too, or is it just text? That's text. Okay. I don't have the crisis okay. line memorized. Okay. But they can give you the line if oh, you text yeah. them. And yeah. yeah, somebody will be talking to you very quickly. Yes. So, because uh, I don't think they do suicide prevention text. So, kind of get away from it. Um, yeah, so I think that's going to be it for today. Um, you know, I think it really comes up. Well, first off, I want to, Sarah, thank you very much for being on. Thank you. Um, and I hope I hope to ha- I hope that uh, you come back. We can keep having these conversations. Um, who knows? Maybe we'll go live one day. People can come on and ask questions, and yeah, you know. and see what we look like. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there's pictures of us on the internet. You can go look. Well, I want to thank everybody for being a part of everything that we do. Um, you know, it's important that people tell their stories. It's important that. People have information from different ways, different sources, and different in different languages um, because we all we all kind of take things differently. But do know that if you're that person that's out there that needs help, that there are people that will give you a place where you can talk, where you can talk and not have the fear of judgment. Um, again, if anybody would like to be a part, would be a part of. You can always reach out and let us know. Uh, In the meantime, thank you everybody for being here. I love you all. Uh, Goodbye from Smitty Studio in Colorado, Parker, Colorado. Um, And uh, have a great day. Thank you. Have a day. Peace out.